Welcome to To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation so we can grow in our relationship with God. Calvary Chapel. So, tonight's title for the sermon is called Land of the, the Lost. So, we're going to be going through the book of Jonah. And uh, the book of Jonah is a powerful book. It has, sort, it has so many spiritual teachings that it could be likened to going to a well that doesn't dry up. In other words, we can keep coming back for more and more spiritual teachings. I personally struggled with putting this sermon together. I, there were just so many things I wanted to cover, but I had to make some final decisions on the cutting room floor, as they say in the movie biz. So I had to cut some things out. So for example, I could have gone into a whole apologetic argument of what the sea beast actually was that swallowed Jonah. Was it a fish? Was it a whale? Well, good news. That's a great apologetic argument for another time. Kind of funny how we're not, the apologetic guy is not going to cover apologetics tonight. I don't know, maybe I'm growing or something. I think the more important question to ask is why the great sea beast was there and what it did that's crucially important. So there's an old saying, I don't want to major in the minors, you know, uh, what it, why it was there and what it did is more important than what it actually was. So one of the overriding messages of Jonah is that God has not only compassion for those whom we expect, that is, those who are obedient to him, but for all of mankind, as we will see later on in this sermon. Jonah as a book, the entire book, challenges readers as it forces them to ask if they have compassion for others as Yahweh does or are they are arrogantly resentful of God's compassion the way Jonah was. The worldwide scope of God's love hinted at in this book would become even more clear when Jesus told his disciples to make, his followers to make disciples of all nations, teaching them that God's love extends to all the world. So Jonah is considered a, a minor prophet, but he's a, a unique among the minor prophets as this book is both a narrative and prophetic. Also, it is unique that it focuses on the prophet himself rather than the message. Moreover, it is filled with irony and displays a high degree of sophistication. So now, let us dig into the book of Jonah and find all these key points. Okay, point number one, background and historical context of, Je of Jonah. The book of Jonah gives little insight to its time period. However, some information can be learned from 2 Kings chapter 14, verses 23 to 28. In the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, 
Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, became king in Samaria and reigned for 41 years. And actually, it's kind of funny. Um, I have a, actually one of my students at the, the martial arts dojo. Uh, he's um, more um, Indian, but he has his name Joash. And because I was putting this thing, the guy kept calling him, King Joash, your time is up. King Joash, get over here. King Joash, stand over there. And he started to get a kick out of it. <laughs> 24, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who had made Israel sin. He restored the territory of Israel from the entrance of Hamas to the Sea of Abarah, according to the word of the Lord of God of Israel, which he had spoken through his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was from Gaiath Hefer. For the Lord saw that the affliction of Israel was very bitter, and whether bond or free, there was no helper for Israel. And the Lord did not say that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven, but he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. Now the rest of the act of Jeroboam and all that he did, his might, how he made war, and how he recaptured for Israel from Damascus and Hamath, what had belonged to Judah, are they not written in the book of Chronicles of the king of, kings of Israel? So what can we gather from the scripture we just read? Jonah prophesied during the reign of Jeroboam II, who was king of Israel between 782 and 753 B.C. Now remember the timeline when it comes to ancient history. A.D. is going forward, so after Christ, one, two, three. And then as you go backwards, it's B.C. So I, as I was putting this together, 753 B.C. was even before the Olympic Games. That's 776 B.C. So as I'm reading it, if you make a comparison of all that was going on in the world, there were major kings before the first Olympics. It is reasonable to assume that that's when Jonah took place. Although the book might have been written down later, this was a time of prosperity and expansion of Israel due to the weakness of the Assyrian state. However, Assyria would regain its strength and take Israel into exile a generation later. I would like to keep this, this in mind. Assyria, a great and evil war power, had a profound effect on Israel, as well as Jonah the man, when we'll get into that a little bit down the road. So in other words, keep in mind Assyria and Nineveh and their Jonah's attitude towards them. Because if you do the research, I actually guys, I actually spared you. If you understood what the Syrians did wartime, um, you'd all lose your lunch. So I'm just gonna leave it at that. So the Syrians were major, major, let's just say genocidal for lack of a for a better modern term. So I'm gonna spare you guys. You're welcome. Okay. Number one, Jonah flees from the Lord. The Lord charged Jonah with a special mission. He wanted him to go and preach salvation to the Ninevites. Nineveh was the capital city of the Assyrian Empire. God desired Jonah to go and warn him, warn them of the coming catastrophe that will visit their city in 40 days. If the people did not repent and turn away from their sin, unfortunately, Jonah had other plans. So if they did not repent of their sin, then destruction was going to come to him. So God said to Jonah, go and do this. And he just hightailed out there. He said, no thanks, and he ran. Jonah chapter 1, verse 3. But Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. 
He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. When I first read this account, uh, it was unclear to me what jo why Jonah fled. I thought maybe he was being a coward or he was afraid. However, it is revealed later as we read, read together why he flees. Point number two, if God wants you, he will get you. The Lord wasted no time pursuing Jonah. Right away, he sent horrible weather to stop Jonah from leaving. Jonah chapter 1, verse 4, But the Lord sent out a great wind on the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship was about to be broken up. Jonah must have thought you can escape God's will for you, but you can't. Point number three. While Jonah sleeps, everyone on the boat fights for survival. Jonah immediately goes into the ship, goes to the bow of the ship, and falls asleep. As this happens, God sends the bad weather. Jonah chapter, five, well, I'm sorry, Jonah chapter 1, verse 5. But the Lord sent out a great wind on the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship was about to be broken up. Number four, Jonah fears the Lord with a question mark. And there's a reason why I put the question mark there. As Jonah sleeps, the sailors are fearful. They are trying to keep the ship together as well as keep their lives intact. All the while, Jonah is fast asleep. The man who brought calamity to the ship because he ran from the Lord. Jonah chapter, nine, ver I'm sorry, Jonah chapter 1 verse 9. So he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Jonah says he fears the Lord, but his actions say otherwise. If Jonah fears the Lord, then why did he run? Why didn't he obey? Why did he put the sailors' lives in trouble? So, let's have a good understanding of what it means to fear the Lord. For the unbeliever... The fear of God is the fear of the judgment of God and eternal death, which is eternal separation from God. For the believer, the fear of God is something much different. The believer's fear is reverence of God. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 28 to 29, is a good description of this. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that it cannot be shaken, let us be thankful. And so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. This reverence and awe are exactly what the fear of God means for Christians. This is the motivating factor for us to surrender to the creator of the universe. Amen? Proverbs verses one, uh, chapter 1 verse 7 declares, the, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Until we understand who God is, and develop a reverential fear of him, reverential fear of him, we cannot have true wisdom. True wisdom comes only from understanding who God is and that he is holy, just, and righteous. Deuteronomy chapter 12, I'm sorry, chapter 10, 20 to 21 records, And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Fear the Lord your God and serve him. 
Hold fast to him and take your oaths in his name. He is your praise. He is your God who performed for you those great and awesome wonders you saw with your own eyes. The fear of God is the basis for our walking in his ways, serving him, and yes, even loving him. Some redefine the fear of God for believers to respecting him. While respect is definitely included in the concept of fearing God, there is more to it than just that. A biblical fear of God for the believer includes understanding how much God hates sin and fearing his judgment on sin, even in the life of the believer. So as believers, we have to almost like, almost have like, a, you know, not our neck on our chopping block, but we have to be like so steadfast and so worried because even though we're sin, we also are, are, we have to be very, very careful because one step up, we, we can slip. So we have to have like our head on a swivel and be alert and be the watchman on the, top, the tower, even as believers. You know, sanctification means that we become clo- uh, more like Christ every, uh, every single day, but we're not going to be Christ. We're not going to be that you know, as Pastor Joe says, once that, once that time comes in the presence of the Lord, all the answers will come to us. Amen? Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 to 11, describes God's discipline of the believer. While it is done in love, it is still a fearful thing. When we were children, our fear of discipline from our parents no doubt prevented some evil actions on our part. And that's, you guys who are parents, you can understand that. How many times... Did you rebuke or discipline your children from touching the stove or things of that nature? Funny story, my, <laughs> my nephew was playing with his trucks. He loves monster trucks. And he's on the floor, and he's on his trucks. And my father loses on his back. He has his shirt off, and there's a brown streak right there. Because he didn't say, Pop up, I went to the bathroom. He was too busy playing with his trucks. So, we, so he had, we had to wash him. And my dad's like, you have, to, you have to let us know. You have to let us know. Well, he's two. He's two and a half. I don't know how much he can tell us. I guess he, was, he loved monster trucks. But that was, that was an issue. That was actually that happened today. So, Believers are not to be scared of God. We have no reason to be scared of him. And that's why it's important to have a right understanding of the word fear of the Lord. We have his promise that nothing can separate us from his love. We have his promise that he will never leave us or forsake us. And that's crucial. That's a promise that I think a lot of us forget when we're in our moments, in our flesh. But he's always there. Fearing God means having a reverence for him that greatly impacts the way we live. The fear of God is respecting him obeying him, submitting to his discipline, and worshiping him with awe. And we do a lot of that in church. I feel like worshiping with awe is in the, right before our sermons. We worship the Lord. That's us worshiping him in awe. So Jonah begins to have a change of heart. However, it is not until what happens next that this change becomes absolute. So I would argue that Jonah says that he, has, um, he fears the Lord, but he hasn't just yet. I'll give him the benefit of the doubt that he was a precursor to him fearing the Lord, because I don't think that happens until much later. But 
for now we'll say that he was in the beginning of fearing the Lord. So when he said that, it was kind of true, kind of not, I feel. Point number five, Jonah has a change of heart. Now, moving forward, Jonah chapter 1, verses 13 to 16. Nevertheless, men rode hard to return to land, but they could not. For the sea continued to grow more tempestuous against them. Therefore they cried out to the Lord and said, We pray, O Lord, please do not let us perish for this man's life, and do not charge us with innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and threw him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men were feared the Lord exceedingly and offered a sacrifice to the Lord and took vows. See, like I said, if God wants you, he'll get you. So the sailors showed fear and reverence to the Lord God, but it's uncertain if they truly repented. It is also very possible that the sailors simply did what they had to to save their lives because the text says that they they were praying to their, their pagan gods. So hopefully they had a change of heart. Now the word repentance in the Bible literally means the act of changing one's mind. True biblical repentance goes beyond remorse, regret, or feeling bad about one's sin. It involves more than merely turning away from sin. So one of the Bible dictionaries included this definition of repentance. In its fullest sense, it is a term for a complete change of orientation involving a judgment upon the past and a deliberate redirection for the future. In the Old Testament, repentance, or wholeheartedly turning to God, is a recurring theme. In the message of the prophets, repentance was demonstrated through rituals such as fasting, wearing sackcloth, sitting in ashes, wailing, and liturgical laments that expressed strong sorrow for sin. These rituals were supposed to be accompanied by authentic repentance, which involved a commitment to a renewed relationship with God a walk of obedience to his word, and right living. Often, however, these rituals merely represented remorse and a desire to escape the consequences of sin. And that's a key point, because if we're doing these rituals, are they turning our heart, or are they just rituals, just to pass the time? I'm reminded when Christ talked to uh, the Pharisees, and he said, you know, you pretend to be holy outside, but inside you are, you are dry bones. You are like whitewashed tombs. That's what that reminds me of. Don't get me wrong. Uh, r- rituals are okay in the, in the practice of believers, the things that we do. But why are we doing them? That is the question. Are we doing them just to feel remorse? Or are we doing that because we actually want to repent? And I know people like that. I'm sure you do drama queens, and all these kind of people are like, oh, I'm so this, I'm so that. A lot of that in the, in, the, um, in, in the false Christian movements, there's a lot of that there. So we have to keep an eye on that. We have to be good Bereans and keep an eye on that. So Jonah's self-sacrifice saved the lives of the sailors. This is also the beginning of Jonah coming along his way, as we shall see. Number six, the great fish. Jonah 1.17 Chapter 1, verse 17. Now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the beast for three days and three nights. As I stated in my introduction, I could dive into two. I could dive into, guys, get it? Dive into? Tough crap. 
I could dive into all the aspects of what swallowed Jonah. Was it a whale? Was it a huge fish? Although, again, a great apologetic question, we can leave that for another day. One day I'll get into it. Ask me down the road. Was it a fish or was it a whale? We'll get into it. I think what is most important about the entity that swallowed Jonah is the reasoning as to why that happened. In other words, why does it matter? Why did this important thing happen to Jonah? Well, I see two major important issues with this situation. Number one, Joe's prayer, Jonah's prayer. Jonah chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the fish's belly. And he said, I cried out to the Lord because of my affliction. And he answered me, out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your billows and your waves passed over me. Then I said, I have been cast out of your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. The water surrounded me, even to my soul. The deep closed around me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I went down to the moorings of the mountains. The earth with its bars closed behind me forever. Yet you have brought up my life from the pit. O Lord my God. When my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord. And I prayed, and my prayer went up to you into your holy temple. Those who regard worthless idols forsake their own mercy. Think about that for a second. Those who regard worthless idols forsake their own mercy. But I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. I will pay what I have vowed. Salvation is of the Lord. And I have that highlighted in my notes. I will pay what I have vowed. Salvation is of the Lord. So the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. So, number one, his adversity trapped in the belly of the beast brought him closer to the Lord, which in turn caused a great fish to let him go. Number two, in the belly of the beast for three days and three nights caused Jonah to repent of his sins, to give God what he was required, and to realize that salvation comes from the Lord. So, I have a question. Do you guys believe now that at this time, this point, that Jonah feared the Lord? No? All right. We'll get into it later. (laughs) Okay, point number seven. The connection to Christ. Jonah's time in the belly of the beast is directly mentioned by Christ. In Matthew chapter chapter 12, verses 39 to 41. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given to you except for the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up in judgment with this generation and condemn it, because they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and indeed a greater than Jonah is here. Now, Christ our Lord referenced Jonah and his time in the great fish. He not only tells us that if people of Nineveh were here today, during Jesus' time, they would tell the Pharisees and this wicked generation to repent, just as Jonah did. So think about the switch. 
the people in Nineveh who repented, if it were, they were to come to the Pharisees of that day, they would have told them exactly what Jonah said to them. But he also uses Jonah as a precursor to what he is doing and makes the remark that a greater prophet than Jonah is here. In other words, Christ is saying, you know the account of Jonah, and yet you miss the fact that a greater prophet is here before you, and that is greater than Jonah. You honor Jonah, you preach about Jonah, but you forget and continue to forget that the Messiah, the God in the flesh, is standing before you, and in three days you will see with your own eyes this new Jonah, that this Messiah will rise from the dead. To emphasize this point even more, the late apologist Nabil Qureshi states in his talk at Georgia Tech, in order to prove to you what I am saying is true, you ask me for a sign. I will show you one sign. I will be dead in the grave for three days in the heart of Sheol, and just as Jonah came out of that whale, I will come out of that grave. So that's what Christ was talking about. He was using Jonah to try to reach the Pharisees and say, but by the way, you're missing it. The greater Jonah, you're looking at him. Point number eight. Jonah preaches repentance. Jonah, after being released by the great fish, begins the journey that the Lord wished for him to do. The text explains that although the journey was a total of three days, Jonah got there on just the first day's journey. In my opinion, this explains urgency, as if he couldn't get there fast enough instead on doing God's will. So he comes out of the fish, or whale, whatever, who knows, and he's ready to go. He's like, all right, you don't fire for the Lord. So I think it's pretty impressive that if it's a three-day journey, you get there in one. I mean, I can only think of the only reason why he would do that is because he really wanted to he was renewed by the Lord and wanted to really minister for him. Jonah chapter 3, verses 2 to 4. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach it to its message that I tell you. Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was exceedingly a great city, three-day journey in extent. And Jonah began to enter the city on the first day's walk. Then he cried out and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Could you imagine that? Somebody just walks in and says, Forty days! Gone. Done. That's it. But luckily, the people of Nineveh believed. In 40 days there will be great calamity and destruction to this city through destruction if you do not repent and turn to the Lord, the God of everything. But they repented. So praise God for that. So Jonah chapter 3, verses 5 to 10. So the people of Nineveh believed God, proclaimed a fast, and put on sackcloth from the, from the greatest to the least of them, which means everything. Then the word came to the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne and set aside his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and satin ashes. And he caused it to be proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, Let neither man nor beast, 
herd nor flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily to God. Yes, let everyone turn from his evil ways and from the violence that is in his hands. Who can tell if God will turn and relent and turn away from his fierce anger so that we may not perish? Then God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way, and God relented from the disaster that he had said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. The people and king believe. To understand the way the people showed obedience to the Lord, let us now dig into what it means to put on sackcloth and sit in ashes. Get it, guys? Dig into ashes. I just made that one up. Come on. Give me something. Come on. Uh, thank you. I just, wow, ashes dig into? I didn't know that until about five seconds ago. So, sackcloth and ashes were used in Old Testament times as a symbol of debasement, mourning, and or repentance. Someone wanted to show his repentant heart would often wear sackcloth and sit in ashes and put ashes on top of his head. Now, sackcloth was a coarse material usually made of black goat's hair, making it quite uncomfortable to wear. And the ashes signified desolation and ruin. Now, ashes accompanied sackcloth in times of national disaster or repenting from sin. So, for just for example, in Esther, for instance, described Mordecai tearing his clothes, putting on sackcloth and ashes, and walking out into the city, wailing loudly and bitterly. This is Mordecai's reaction to King Xerxes' declaration, given the wicked Haman authority to destroy the Jews. And if you want reference, you can see uh, Esther chapter 8, verses 8 to 15. Mordecai was not the only one who grieved. In every province to which the edict and order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting, weeping, and wailing. Many lay in sackcloth and in ashes. The Jews responded to the devastating news concerning their race with sackcloth and ashes, showing their intense grief and distress. Now, sackcloth and ashes were also used as a public sign of repentance and humility before God. When Jonah declared to the people of Nineveh that God was going to destroy them for their wickedness, everyone from the king on down responded with repentance, fasting, and sackcloth and ashes, just like we covered. But even more detailed, they even put sackcloth on their animals. Their reasoning was, who knows, God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. This is interesting because the Bible never says that Jonah's message included any mention of God's mercy, but mercy is what they received. It's clear that the Ninevites doing, donning the sackcloth and ashes was not a meaningless show. It was actually very genuine. It was a genuine change. A humble change of heart represented by the sackcloth and ashes, and it caused him to relent and not bring about his plan to destroy them. Why? because they were genuine. They really, truly believed. They really, truly repented. And God, who always keeps his promises, said, okay, you will be spared. Very simply, sackcloth and ashes were used as an outward sign of one's inward condition. Such a symbol made one's change of heart visible and demonstrated the sincerity of one's grief 
and or repentance. It was not the act of putting on sackcloth and ashes itself that moved God to intervene, but the humility that such an action demonstrated. I'm going to say that again so it really sticks. It was not the act of putting on sackcloth and ashes itself that moved God to intervene. So the act of doing it wasn't the thing. But the humility that such an action demonstrated. Point number 10. God ministers to Jonah and helps him through his prejudice. So, Jonah obeys the Lord and does what is asked of him, finally. However, he is visibly upset with what happened. The opportunity for the Ninevites to be saved, why would that upset him? Jonah chapter 4, verses 1 to 11. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he became angry. So he prayed to the Lord and said, Ah, Lord, was not this what I said when I was still in my country? Therefore I fled previously to Tarshish. In my, for I knew that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Then the Lord said, Is it right for you to be angry? So Jonah went out of the city and sat on the east side of the city. There he made himself a shelter and sat under it in the shade till he might see what would become of the city. And the Lord God prepared a plant and made it come up over to Jonah that it might be shade for his head to deliver him from his misery. So here's God, turn to him. He's upset, so he makes this plant come to him. So Jonah was very grateful for the plant. But as morning dawned the next day, God prepared a worm, and it so damaged the plant that it withered. And it happened when the sun arose that God prepared a vehement east wind, and the sun beat on Jonah's head, so that he grew faint. Then he wished death for himself and said, it is better for me to die than to live. Jonah's being kind of intense, like, oh, I stubbed my toe. Oh, why don't I die? Easy. Right. Then God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? And I love this. I laugh whenever this, because I could just imagine him saying, and he said, it is right for me to be angry even to death. I just love that. I just started cracking up. Oh, Jonah. But the Lord said, you have had pity on the plant for which you have not labored, nor made it grow, which came up in night and perished in the night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which are more than 120,000 persons who cannot discern between their right hand and their left, and much livestock? So here's God ministering to Jonah, saying, you did a good thing. You helped out so many people. Why are they not deserving of, of salvation? What, what is the issue? You know, I did this for you, but what you did for them was great. Why can't you see that? So here's a question for everybody. Can God love us too much? Right. In his book, Bold Love, Daniel Allenden challenges Christians to think more deeply about a word that they use so often. Love. 
We use the word so easily and might think we know a bit about it. Surely it's all something we want, and in our better moments, want to give. Yet there is no more a demanding occupation than love. It is certainly easy to say God is love. It is another thing entirely to act loving towards our enemies or enemies toward our faith. Furthermore, love is anything but bold when Christians ignore the Great Commission. When they fail to put their lives on the line, enter the closed countries, learn difficult languages, and labor amongst the people of our uh, far-flung lands, which could be Muslims and Hindus and Buddhists, the Lord's love to contrast is always bold, rich, and deep. His love in contrast is always bold, rich, and deep. So as we see in the first three chapters of Jonah, the prophet flees God's command to preach in the wicked city of Nineveh, which we covered, the Assyrian capital of what is now Iraq. In Jonah's time, Assyria was a marauding and powerful nation that invaded Israel and Judah more than once. And like I said earlier today, that, you know, when I spared you how bad they were, their methods were, for lack of a better term, infamous. When people resisted becoming vassals, which is a form of, of um, servitude, they used va- like, if you have like a vassal state, it's like, you know, if I'm in control, this is my vassal state. These are all the people that are un- underneath me. The nation was looted and destroyed. It is possible that it was on the reason, one of these reasons why Jonah chose to flee rather than go there and preach. Jonah also knew that, they, that if they repent, God will forgive them. And Jonah didn't want to have anything to do with that. After all, who wants to introduce their enemies to God? So Jonah had an issue with that. You know, re- read when he got a chance. The Syrians, what they did to Judah, what they did, what they did to Israel. It was hard for him to swallow. So I understand where he's coming from, but he's still wrong because as Christians, as believers, we have to put aside our prejudices. Because what is, what is at stake? Eternity. Okay? We all have people in our life, brothers and sisters, that are just hard to deal with. That is a fact. But what helps me is with the people that are difficult to deal with, are they an image bearer of God? And do they deserve salvation? And if you say yes to both of those questions, then that means we have to put aside our prejudice, our judgments, and we have to help, and we have to love, and we have to do these things to serve them, to bring them to the Lord. Amen? Nevertheless, Joseph's escape was futile. He eventually obeyed God's command. He preached repentance to the people, and just as he feared, the people repented. But by the end of the book, Jonah was downcast again clearly disappointed by the generosity of God's grace. It is one thing for God to love his people, the Jews, but compassion for Assyria was too much for Jonah to take. Of course, Jonah should be, not be surprised by God's bold love initiative to people outside of Jews. So, for example, years earlier, in Exodus chapter 33, verse 19, Then he said, I will make my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So that's God right there in Exodus saying, I am going to connect to or touch who I touch. So instead of condemning rebellious people, God sent a prophet to preach his word. 
consistent with his love character, he gave the city life. Do you guys know Richard Rombrandt, Tortured for Christ? I know Pastor Joe knows. This guy was tortured in a communist prison for 14 years. The guy couldn't walk. Pastor Joe talks about it. He took off his shirt during the uh, congressional hearing. His body ripped apart by lashings. The, they would beat the bottom of his shoe, the bottom of his feet, with like a, a steel rod, so he couldn't walk. So he, he would, he couldn't walk. Then the guy went up and said, "I'm getting sick and tired of beating you. What is your problem?" And then he finally said, "How do I find Christ? How do I find the Lord?" So he punished his body for 14 years to, to reach someone. If you haven't read Torture Account, read that, read that book. It'll change your way of understanding suffering and persecution and what it means to really serve the Lord by putting yourself on the line for others. Now, like Jonah, Christians today may feel tempted to wipe their conscience clean of any responsibility for adherence of other religions, some of whom would wish the church great harm. Nonetheless, Christians leave no room for hatred and apathy. And also with throwing their how about lifestyle. We have our lifestyles. Are we too comfortable? Are we not seeing other, other situations to help and need? So some things to think about. And reviewing when Jesus mentions Jonah, when Jesus says something is great, then Jonah is here, which we covered, he was referring to himself, and he had come to preach to all nations, the friendly and the militant, the safe and the dangerous, the open and the closed. In other words, if you want any proof that Christ loves everyone, look at the Great Commission. What did he say? Every nation, every tribe, everything, preach the gospel. You know, and I've debated, I've debated certain people that feel like that the gospel only belongs to certain people, and that's wrong. And, and, and the Bible backs that up. So now you have a bigger problem. Are you going against the Bible, or are you going to go against, you know, your, your feelings of it? You know, honesty with the faith is the best thing you can do. If you are reading your, the Word, and you are applying it to your life, and you're saying, okay, this is what the Lord says, this is what I'm doing, is it adding up? And if the answer is no, you have to make the adjustment, not the Lord. And a lot of people have that flipped. May the Lord spare the church today from the indifference, indeed the disdain of Jonah. May he also spare her from those who might think if God were to convert a terrorist, he would be loving too much. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, even terrorists deserve salvation. You see, the overriding message of Jonah is that God has not only compassion for those whom, he expect, whom we expect, that is, those who are obedient to him, but for all of mankind. So what does this book do? It challenges readers as it forces them to ask if they have compassion for others as God does. Or they arrogantly resent God's compassion the way Jonah did. The worldwide scope of God's love hinted at the book of Jonah will become even more clear when Jesus, the Great Commission, and I'm going to read it to you now, Matthew 28, 18-20, and Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, 
baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all the things I've commanded you, and I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. So, before we close, one last question. Was that a, um, a suggestion? Was that a passing thought? Was that just something that Christ felt like doing? Or was that a command? That's what I thought. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, your word is so rich, and it's firm when necessary, and it's loving when it's necessary. And I pray that everyone here, and everybody that was watching on, on YouTube, on our channel, that they are honest with ourselves, with themselves, and they say, Lord, am I living up to your standards? I hope they ask that question with reverence and with honesty. And if they're not, the good news, you can fix it, you can change it. You're the only one who can. Who can? And I pray for everybody here, I pray for everybody when they leave, that you show them mercy on their way home, and also give them, give them the grit to go out there and change the world and make disciples of all nations. And everybody said, Amen. Thank you. You've been listening to To Every Generation from Calvary Chapel Crossroads. We meet for Bible study Wednesdays at 7 p.m. And Sunday service begins at 10.30 a.m. On Sundays, we have children's church for all ages, in addition to infant and nursery care. You can find out more about the ministry here at Calvary Chapel Crossfields by going to www.cccrossfields.org, where you can also watch or listen to previous messages. If you have any questions or have a prayer request, please email us at contact at cccrossfields.org. Thanks for listening, and may God bless. Let the